The votes are in and it's official. We have a new president of the Teamsters Union. On today's podcast, he sits down with us and gives us an exclusive interview. Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Sean O'Brien won an overwhelming victory last month to become the next leader of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, the union representing more than a million truck drivers and other transportation workers across the country. The election of a new leader for a union of this size is always notable, but it was especially so in this case because O'Brien beat the candidate endorsed by the outgoing president, James P. Hoffa. You may recognize that name because his father, Jimmy Hoffa, also led the Teamsters Union and famously disappeared in the mid-1970s and was later declared dead. But that's all ancient history. The union O'Brien will start to lead in a few months has some very modern issues it needs to address. First off, Amazon. One of the largest companies in the world, it relies on a lot of truck drivers to get its packages to your house. But a push to unionize the company seemed to fizzle early last year when a closely watched organizing vote at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, failed. However, the National Labor Relations Board has since ruled that this election should be thrown out and redone. One of O'Brien's criticisms of his Hoffa-backed rival in the election was that the Teamsters weren't being aggressive enough toward Amazon. Then there's also the Teamsters' role in the larger labor movement. O'Brien's union famously left the AFL-CIO around 15 years ago, and ever since then there's been talk of reuniting all of the country's largest labor unions into one big conglomerate. O'Brien sat down with Bloomberg Law's Ian Culgren earlier this morning, December 15th, to talk about all of these issues. And Ian started off by asking O'Brien what he was going to do first when he takes office next year and why he thinks his more aggressive strategy will work. I think we've proven over the last 18 months, especially in light of the pandemic, how valuable Teamsters are, whether you're in the package delivery or in the food processing or, or in the waste division, how important we are to society you know, regardless of the toughest times in the world. And now it's, now it's time for, for these employers to recognize and, and appreciate uh, what our members do for them day in and day out. They're not going to be a bottom line of a balance sheet. They're going to be, you know, rewarded accordingly. And, and same holds true for politicians as well. A lot of people listening to this might not be familiar really with the Teamsters or with or with you and your story. Obviously, you're, you're from Boston. You can tell that when you open your mouth. Um, and as I've, I've read about you, you're from a union family as well. Tell us a little bit about growing up in Boston and, and how you came to the position you're in now. Yeah, growing up in Boston was great. I think, uh, you know, growing up uh, in a blue-collar family, blue-collar neighborhood, I'm a fourth-generation Teamster. Uh, and Boston was a, is a heavily populated uh, union, union city. So, What kind of work did your parents do your other teamster elders in your family well they were all truck drivers all the all the, uh, the generations of truck drivers my mother was a uh, a member of 32 year member of OPIU uh, working for the court system but uh, you know it was great growing up there I mean you learned core values you learned all about what it was to be a union member uh, everybody in your neighborhood was in, in some union whether it was the teamsters the ILA Boston Fire Department Boston Police Department or whatever iron workers and so there was always this sense of, of camaraderie there was always this sense of uh, of belonging to an organization and unfortunately over the years that has dwindled uh, 
you know, because of many different reasons. But, you know, there's no longer a generational connection to unions. So I want to make sure that we are educating this new breed of union members, understanding, making them understand how important it is to fight for health care, fight for uh, pensions where you can retire and maintain your lifestyle. But also when we're making choices politically, sometimes you have to put aside your personal reasons and think about what puts food on the table and what provides the benefits for you. And those are the candidates we want to look at making choices. So it's a big big education platform we're going to put forward under our administration. Was there a moment when you decided you were going to go into the family business, so to speak, and make unions your life? Uh, look, I've always loved the Teamsters Union. I used to get up third Sunday of every month when I was a little kid hoping my father would ask me to go to a union meeting with him because it was just, you know, the camaraderie and, you know, the, 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 it's just the brotherhood. It was, it was, it was invigorating to me and as something that I, I knew I always wanted to be a part of growing up. And, uh, you know, I, I love the Teamsters Union. It's been, and I've known from day one that this is what I've wanted to do. You and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh are both kind of cut from the same cloth. Did you know Marty Walsh growing up? I didn't know him growing up. He grew up in a different part. Uh, he grew up in Dorchester. I grew up in Medford, which is just outside of, of uh, Boston proper. But uh, I've, I've known Marty for almost 30 years. I knew Marty when he was a, a state rep. Uh, we helped Marty get elected to the head of the building trades, and we helped him get elected as the mayor. And uh, I actually took a plane ride down with him yesterday uh, to Dorchester. But we've been very close for almost 30 years. Yeah. What, what did he say to you when you won? He said, uh, congratulations, it's great. Uh, you know, Boston is, is in, in, in D.C. strong. Uh, whatever you need us to do with this administration, because, you know, the administration has been pro-union, obviously. Uh, he was very, very uh, complimentary and uh, uh, very accessible if we need anything. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the administration writ large. President Biden has pledged to be the most pro-union president. Have you talked to him yet? I haven't talked to President Biden yet. I've talked to many other people. I've talked to Secretary of Transportation. I've talked to uh, Senator Schumer. I've talked to many Congress people and senators. So uh, it, it's been great. Um, you know, I think there's a lot more. Uh, there's a lot more important things to be dealing with right now than uh, Sean O'Brien. But at some point, I'm certain I'll have a conversation with uh, President Biden. Interesting. Um, you brought up. You know, you brought up the lawmakers. Capitol Hill is kind of a weird world if you haven't dealt with it before. How do you plan to work with lawmakers to help your members? Well, I think everything goes back to what you do locally, and I've never been afraid to reach across the aisle uh, in a Massachusetts level. Um, but, you know, certainly I'm going to be hands-on. Uh, to make certain that when the Teamsters have an ask and when the Teamsters have a demand that it's coming from the head of the Teamsters, not from some lobbying firm or, or some high-paid consultant. I think, you know, I have a, I have a good appetite to, uh, to work with anybody, uh, especially in the betterment of the Brotherhood of the Teamsters Union. A lot of people don't know that the word Teamster actually comes from the days when it was a horse-drawn truck, right? And you were driving a team of horses. And then over the years, it changed to, you know, automotive truck drivers like like your father. Um, and that's how people largely know the Teamsters outside of, you know, what you might see in Hollywood or the Hoffa story or, or things like that. But w what does it mean to you to be a Teamster in the 21st century? What do you want to change and what do you want to keep the same? Well, I think we always have to embrace our history. 
and embrace the fights, embrace the struggles, because that's going to guide us in the future uh, to what we do. But, you know, our forefathers and four sisters, they fought long and hard so that we had affordable health care, so we have pensions you can actually retire on. And that's the stuff that we need to educate and focus this next generation on and then take it to the next level. I mean, I think technology is going to play a significant role, good and bad, uh, in, in every workplace. And we have to look at how we can capitalize on, you know, if we if there's job loss as a result of technology, how we can capitalize on, you know, making good middle class jobs out of these technological jobs that potentially could hurt us in many industries. You know, everybody talks about these autonomous vehicles and these autonomous trucks. Uh, the Teamsters Union does not endorse any type of autonomy in the trucking industry. You know, we think that's a public safety hazard, but we also think it's a it's a way to kill jobs. So we'll be we'll be vigilant, fighting and lobbying against that. Um, but you know, the the reality of it is, look, like I said earlier, you know, we we've got to embrace embrace the the the, the future, which we know is going to be technologically driven. But we also have to not fail to recognize our past and our history, which was a great history. We've provided goods and services uh, for over 118 years, and, we prepare, and we're pre- prepared to provide goods and services for another 118 years. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up autonomous trucking. At what point do you think that's really going to start to be a threat to your members? And in your mind, is it a more effective strategy to push back against autonomous vehicles or try to expand the Teamsters to different areas, maybe areas that are unorganized now to, you know, keep the keep the union alive. Right. I mean, autonomous truck, I think there's a couple of different issues. Obviously, it's a job killer. You know, when, you know, you, you have a lot of these corporations that are investing in this technology and investing in these studies so that they can do platooning where they can hook three and four trailers to one or two units, uh, which normally would have two or three drivers uh, per unit on them. And I think that's, number one, a, a public safety risk. But, you know, here we are making all these investments to infrastructure, bridges and roads. And if we are traveling on these roads, three and four trailers deep, over 240,000 pounds, all this investment isn't going to last much longer. So we've got to take a hard look at a couple of things, how this is going to affect the jobs that we currently represent. Uh, is there going to be an opportunity to organize uh, if technology does replace uh uh, truck driving jobs. So there's, there's a whole a whole bunch of uh, uh, scenarios that we have to look at and, and act upon. And again, we just it goes back to simple block and tackle. And we got to make sure that we protect the jobs we have and try and create as many jobs as a result of it. Mm-hmm. So much of your campaign, or I should say, the presidential campaign overall, was related to organizing Amazon. You're trying to organize the biggest e-commerce company in the world, run by the richest man in the world. Where the heck do you start to do that? That's a great question. Um, We've already started. Um, It should have started 10 years ago uh, when it was a 20-employee book club. Uh, Now it's over a 500,000-employee global economy. Uh, And it's not just in the e-commerce business. They are in food distribution, warehousing. They're in a lot of of different industries, similar industries that we currently represent. I think first and foremost, again, you know, what we've done locally in Boston and some other people have done it around the country as well is we need to try and limit uh, these distribution warehouses from being set up. And if we can't limit them, we got to make sure that we hold them to some sort of community standards. And those community standards are the UPS agreement, the DHL agreement, and any other agreement that you know, provides those same similar services. Uh, We also have to engage the politicians. You know, uh, everybody 
you know, forgets, but these politicians have a responsibility to the constituency on what Amazon looks like in the communities that they're living in, uh, how they're going to protect middle-class jobs like the UPSs of the world, like the DHLs of the world, and also, you know, a lot of these direct employees, which, you know, Amazon uses independent contractor model for the driving portion of it, which is, you know, uh, kind of skirts hours and uh, uh, wage violations, uh, but you know, the direct employees of the warehouse employees, predominantly immigrant workers in the community. So we have to get involved in the community groups as well. And I think it's no secret. It's been pretty well publicized that Amazon does not treat their employees good. So that, you know, that's the kind of stuff we have to do in the communities. But uh, from a union perspective, we're going to negotiate the strongest contracts in similar industries like UPS and DHL. That's going to be our marketing tool to bring to these workers and say, look, this is what you get when you work under a union contract. You get full medical, you get a pension, you get dignity and respect, you have a grievance procedure, you get paid holidays. So, you know, that's, that's, that's first and foremost. If we're going to uh, sell our product, we're going to make sure it's a product that, you know, these folks at Amazon are going to buy into and make certain that that's what they want to work under. So we have to negotiate the strongest contracts in similar industries. So if I'm hearing you right, you're, you're talking about sort of a couple different things. You're talking about actually trying to stop distribution centers from being built if they're not union labor? Well, I wouldn't say just stop them. Some, some places, uh, you know, you're not going to stop them. But you've got to enlighten the government. We've been able to pass, you know, town, city and town governments. We've been able to pass resolutions uh, that aren't binding, but they, you know, basically uh, try and uphold community standards. So a lot of people that are living in these neighborhoods where Amazon's being built next to a UPS facility or a DHL facility, uh, we want to make sure that Amazon knows that there's a community standard there and that they have to adhere to it. So uh, a lot of the issue, too, is the general public not knowing the independent contractor model. They don't know that these drivers may not be drug tested. They don't know that these drivers, uh, you know, may not be subject or they may be going over DOT rules and regulations, hours of service. You know, you've got people flying up and down streets. So, you know, there's a, there's a public safety issue to that as well. Now, like I'll talk about Boston, a lot of people accept the UPSs of the world and the DHLs of the world because they've been there forever. They've been in the city. A lot of people don't like truck traffic anymore, and they know they know that you know part of the issue is when you build these distribution facilities, especially with Amazon, they have people going multiple directions, similar routes, uh, crisscrossing. Unlike the UPS of the world, the DHL, so you know that's always been a big issue when they're trying to uh, permit for these uh, distribution facilities as well. Mm-hmm. So, are you, are you actually talking about starting at the warehouse? level to organize versus the the truck drivers because you can't really because they're independent contractors and it's yes i mean if we're going to start you know start an organizing campaign it's going to have to be with the direct employees we've got a lot of work to do on the other side especially with our relationships with the politicians we need to change these independent contractor models Uh, i think we've seen it not just in amazon but also with uh the gig economy like you know the uber and the lifts of the world you know so you know that's going to be another another battle on another front uh, but, yeah, we, I mean, we definitely have to start with the warehouse and, you know, we have to engage our members that work in similar industries. Uh, it's not going to be a traditional organizing drive where you stand outside the gates and hand out cards and say join the union. Again, you're going to look at what we have under, uh, under similar industries under a collective bargaining agreement, worker-to-worker uh, interaction. You know, you part-time is at UPS, part-time is at DHL, talking to these folks. So it's going to be a long process. It's a long game. But, you know, we're up for the fight and we're up for the challenge, and it's, a ne- it's necessary. What did you learn from seeing the way that the Bessemer election went down that 
changed your perspective about how this should be done. Was there anything like that? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I got to give the, the folks in Bessemer credit for, for taking on that fight. Um, I think, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was a traditional organizing drive or handled as a traditional organizing drive. I think we've got to engage a lot of partnerships. Again, like I said, we've got to engage our, you know, affiliations with the AFL-CIO and many other labor organizations. We've got to engage the community organizations. We've got to engage the politicians. And I'm not certain what the strategy was in Bessemer, um, but I know moving forward that the strategies that we have set forth and the strategy we've talked about today is probably going to be our best shot at organizing Amazon location by location. The Teamsters, as we both know, left the AFL-CIO in 2005. You just mentioned engaging partners. Would rejoining the AFL-CIO or perhaps revamping Change to Win or creating a new federation, would that, would that help you? Look, I think a couple things. You know, I've been asked this question quite a bit. Uh, the Teams is going to reaffiliate with the AFL-CIO. I mean, we're certainly I've made a commitment to get out of Change to Win. Uh, under our administration, but uh, I will take a look at any affiliation, and if it's in the best interest of the organization, best interest of the uh, labor movement, we'll certainly uh, reaffiliate if that's in the best interest. But if we don't reaffiliate, uh, we've worked with the AFL-CIO, we've worked with many different organizations that we're not part of, uh, and, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, but everything's, you know, we're going to take a look at it March 22nd, and if it's in the best interest of, of our organization and our mission, then we'll certainly uh, take a hard look at reaffiliating. Have you talked to AFL-CIO President Liz Schuler yet? She had. She reached out to me, congratulated me. We had a brief conversation. Uh, very nice woman, and uh, look forward to working with her. Let's talk about the election. I actually was fortunate. I was fortunate enough to go see the ballots counted, or some of them at least. Okay at the warehouse in Alexandria where they were being tallied. And I was surprised because walking through there at first, the ballots I saw, you know, because you can see them once they're out of the envelope and they're being counted and everything. They're anonymous at that point. They don't have people's names on them. But you can look and see who people voted for. And I was there for a couple hours, and I did not see one, a single ballot for your opponent. And at first I thought, well, maybe they're just counting one local, like, you know, from, from Boston or something that, you know, is, is obviously going to vote for him. But you ended up winning about 115,000 votes to your opponent's roughly 68,000 votes. I mean, you had a, you know, Reagan-Mondale-esque landslide win. Just a few years ago, TDU, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, the reform movement you're a part of was kind of this ragtag band of rebels that was, you know, trying to change things from inside the union. That's a big mandate to win on. What do you think that means? What message were Teamsters sending? Well, they sent, certainly sent a message that there was an appetite for change. And when we started this journey three years ago, uh, you know, we, we learned that you know, whether you're part of TDU, whether you're part of Teamsters United or your regular teams, we're all Teamsters at the end of the day. So we felt it was in the best interest to form these coalitions, form a team comprised of, of many diverse people affiliated with different coalitions. And I think that was the key. But the key to winning so big was that our messaging was on point. Uh, we, we took a we, we ran a very positive campaign. We didn't go negative. Uh, and we went out and we actually talked to rank and file members. Uh, 
you know, we, we were at the gates at 4 in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, all over the United States. So we, it was basically a lot of sweat equity. Uh, we were out there interacting with the members, the rank and file members who were the most important part of this whole process. So uh, it was a victory and, and, and it definitely winning by that large margin uh, obviously uh, sent a message that our members uh, have, a, have an appetite for change and uh, they voted and um, thankfully they voted our way. So you've got a relatively long run-up to when you take over in March. You're down here in D.C. today doing transition work. You said you've been down here about three days a week-ish doing transition work. What are you doing over at headquarters to prepare yourself and get ready for this? Well, we're trying to learn everything about this organization. Now, I've been an international vice president for 10 years, so I do have some uh, intimate knowledge of, of how it works, but more or less just trying to figure out every single department, figure out every single person that works there, uh, the inner workings, the day-to-day -day operations, which is important, which is going to be one part of it. And then the next part of it is, you know, rebuilding a lot of these divisions, rebuilding a lot of these uh, uh, departments so that we can be, as I said during the campaign, bigger, faster, stronger, more user-friendly to our local unions in United States and Canada. So we've got a lot of work. It's just basically a lot of fact-finding. Uh, and then we'll come up with a uh, plan to make some changes, um, obviously, which is going to be in the best interest of the organization. You, for all intents and purposes, your message at least was running against President Hoffa. Now, you're involved with his people for this transition. Has that been difficult, getting along with them? Look, I, I, we haven't really been involved with uh, too many of his people. They've got a... Um, They've got a liaison, basically, that's working for us, and it's been great. Everybody's been cooperative. Uh, uh, he hasn't, still to this day, hasn't reached out to congratulate any of us on our slate. Um, so we're just going to focus on, we're not going to focus on any of that stuff. We're just going to focus on what we need to learn about the building, what we need to learn about the organization, and just move forward. Mm -hmm. I know you've got some, you know, big contracts coming up pretty early in your tenure, you mentioned DHL, I believe is one. Um, tell us about DHL and what other big contracts you have that you're going to have to deal with right out of the gate. Well, we're definitely going to have to deal with DHL, which expires, I believe, March 30th of this year. We take over March 22nd. Uh, Bill Hamilton, who is a uh, Eastern Region Vice President, uh, is on our slate as well, has handled that assignment for decades. So we're confident that in Bill's ability uh, to get it done. But DHL has been a very difficult employer. Um, they haven't been you know, cooperative. Uh, they're not from the United States. So that's going to be a challenge. The next up after that will be Car Hall which Car Hall has been, you know, uh, dwindling. So a couple things with Car Hall, we got to make sure that, again, we negotiate the best contracts so that we can track the non-union so that we can have a plan to organize them. After Car Hall, then we've got, uh, we've got UPS, which is the largest collective bargaining agreement in the entire country. And right now we have a couple of strikes going on with some ready-mix companies out in uh, Seattle. We've got some strikes going on with Republic Waste out in L.A. So we've got a lot going on. Uh, I think they're going to try and test our administration right out of the gate, uh, which is fine, whoever that employer may be. Uh, but look, there's been such an appetite to fight employers, fight big business. I think we're in a perfect uh, situation. Uh, we're well-funded with our strike fund to sustain a lot of these battles, and uh, I look forward to it. 
How is I know how you feel about the UPS contract. How do you feel about the status of the DHL contract? Like, what do, do, is there a lot of work that needs to be done there in your mind? Is it a bad contract as it is right now? No, I don't. I don't. I wouldn't suggest the DHL contract's a bad contract. We could. We could. They. They have an independent contract, a model that they use as well that we've been able to organize around the country. Uh, but you know, I think every contract, no matter how good it is, there's always room for improvement. I think a company like DHL needs to understand that, you know, if they're going to move forward with the relationship with the Teamsters, that they're going to have to provide some neutrality in some of these areas that aren't uh, organized. Uh, they're going to have to provide some cooperation, um, and then we just build upon every contract, every cycle. That was Sean O'Brien, the incoming president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, speaking with Bloomberg Law's Ian Culgren. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merit. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Cheryl Sines, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We use the handle at BLaw. That's B as in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Taxes and accounting are complicated. But finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Jeff Leon. And I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you, from corporate filings to diversity within the profession, and even the latest on the burgeoning cannabis industry. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.